Section 1 of Ingersoll on Which Way? From the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume 3, Lectures. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brian Levine, Burbank, California. Section 1. Two Ways, Natural and Supernatural. There are two ways, the natural and the supernatural. One way is to live for the world we are in, to develop the brain by study and investigation, to take, by invention, advantage of the forces of nature, to the end that we may have good houses, raiment, and food, to the end that the hunger of the mind may be fed through art and science. The other way is to live for another world that we expect, to sacrifice this life that we have for another that we know not of. The other way is by prayer and ceremony to obtain the assistance, the protection of some phantom above the clouds. One way is to think, to investigate, to observe, and follow the light of reason. The other way is to believe, to accept, to follow, to deny the authority of your own senses, your own reason, and bow down to those who are impudent enough to declare that they know. One way is to live for the benefit of your fellow men, for your wife. And children to make those you love happy and to shield them from the sorrows of life the other way is to live for ghosts goblins phantoms and gods with the hope that they will reward you in another world one way is to enthrone reason and rely on facts the other to crown credulity and live on faith one way is to walk by the light within, by the flame that illuminates the brain, verifying all by the senses, by touch and sight and sound. The other way is to extinguish the sacred light and follow blindly the steps of another. One way is to be an honest man, giving to others your thought, standing erect, intrepid, careless of phantoms and hells. The other way is to cringe and crawl, to betray your nobler self, and to deprive others of the liberty that you have not the courage to enjoy. Do not imagine that I hate the ones who have taken the wrong side and traveled the wrong road. Our fathers did the best they could. They believed in the supernatural, and they thought that sacrifices and prayer, fasting and weeping would induce the supernatural to give them sunshine, rain, and harvest long life in this world, and eternal joy in another. To them, God was an absolute monarch, quick to take offense, sudden in anger, terrible in punishment, jealous, hateful to his enemies, generous to his favorites. They believed also in the existence of an evil God, almost the equal of the other God in strength, and a little superior in cunning. Between these two gods was the soul of man, like a mouse between two paws. Both of these gods inspired fear. Our fathers did not quite love God, nor quite hate the devil, but they were afraid of both. They really wished to enjoy themselves with God in the next world, and with the devil in this. They believed that the course of nature was affected by their conduct, that floods and storms, diseases, earthquakes and tempests were sent as punishments and that all good phenomena were rewards. Everything was under the direction and control of supernatural powers. The air, the darkness, were filled with angels and devils. 
Witches and wizards planned and plotted against the pious, against the true believers. Eclipses were produced by the sins of the people, and the unusual was regarded as the miraculous. In the good old times, Christendom was an insane asylum, and insane priests and prelates were the keepers. There was no science. The people did not investigate, did not think. They trembled and believed. Ignorance and superstition ruled the Christian world. At last, a few began to observe, to make records, and to think. It was found that eclipses came at certain intervals, and that their coming could be foretold. This demonstrated that the actions of men had nothing to do with eclipses. A few began to suspect that earthquakes and storms had natural causes, and happened without the slightest reference to mankind. Some began to doubt the existence of evil spirits, or the interference of good ones in the affairs of the world. Finding out something about astronomy, the great number of the stars, the certain and continuous motions of the planets, and the fact that many of them were vastly larger than the Earth. Ascertaining something about the Earth, the slow development of forms, the growth and distribution of plants, the formation of islands and continents, the parts played by fire, water, and air through countless centuries, the kinship of all life, fixing the Earth's place in the constellation of the Sun, by experiment and research, discovering a few secrets of chemistry, by the invention of printing and the preservation and dissemination of facts, theories, and thoughts, they were able to break a few chains of superstition, to free themselves a little from the dominion of the supernatural, and to set their faces toward the light. Slowly, the number of investigators and thinkers increased. Slowly, the real facts were gathered. The sciences began to appear. The old beliefs grew a little absurd. The supernatural retreated and ceased to interfere in the ordinary affairs of men. Schools were founded, children were taught, books were printed, and the thinkers increased. Day by day, confidence lessened in the supernatural. And day by day, men were more and more impressed with the idea that man must be his own protector, his own providence. From the mists and darkness of savagery and superstition emerged the dawn of the natural. A sense of freedom took possession of the mind, and the soul began to dream of its power. On every side were invention and discovery and bolder thought. The church began to regard the friends of science as its foes. Theologians resorted to chain and faggot, to mutilation and torture. The thinkers were denounced as heretics and atheists, as the minions of Satan and the defamers of Christ. All the ignorance, prejudice, and malice of superstition were aroused and all united for the destruction of investigation and thought. For centuries, this conflict was waged. Every outrage was perpetrated, every crime committed by the believers in the supernatural. But, in spite of all, the disciples of the natural increased, and the power of the church waned. Now, the intelligence of the world is on the side of the natural. Still, the conflict goes on, the supernatural constantly losing and the natural constantly gaining. In a few years, the victory of science over superstition will be complete and universal. 
So there have been for many centuries two philosophies of life, one in favor of the destruction of the passions, the lessening of wants, and absolute reliance on some higher power, the other in favor of the reasonable gratification of the passions, the increase of wants, and their supply by industry, ingenuity, and invention, and the reliance of man on his own efforts. Diogenes, Epictetus, Socrates, to some extent Buddha and Christ, all taught the first philosophy. All despised riches and luxury. All were the enemies of art and music, the despisers of good clothes and good food and good homes. They were the philosophers of poverty and rags, of huts and hovels, of ignorance and faith. They preached the glories of another world and the miseries of this. They derided the prosperous, the industrious, those who enjoyed life, and reserved heaven for beggars. This philosophy is losing authority. And now, most people are anxious to be happy here, in this life. Most people want food and roof and raiment, books and pictures, luxury and leisure. They believe in developing the brain, in making servants and slaves of the forces of nature. Now, the intelligent men of the world have cast aside the teachings, the philosophy of the ascetics. They no longer believe in the virtue of fasting and self-torture. They believe that happiness is the only good, and that the time to be happy is now, here, in this world. They no longer believe in the rewards and punishments of the supernatural. They believe in consequences, and that the consequences of bad actions are evil, and the consequences of good actions are good. They believe that man, by investigation, by reason, should find out the conditions of happiness, and then live and act in accordance with such conditions. They do not believe that earthquakes or tempests or volcanoes or eclipses are caused by the conduct of men. They no longer believe in the supernatural. They do not regard themselves as the serfs, servants, or favorites of any celestial king. They feel that many evils can be avoided by knowledge, and for that reason they believe in the development of the brain. The schoolhouse is their church, and the university their cathedral. So there have been, for some centuries, two theories of government, one theological, the other secular. The king received his power directly from God. It was the business of the people to obey. The priests received their creeds from God, and it was the duty of the people to believe. The theological government is growing somewhat unpopular. In England, Parliament has taken the place of God, and in the United States, government derives its powers from the consent of the governed. Probably Emperor William is the only man in Germany who really believes that God placed him on the throne and will keep him there whether the German people are satisfied or not. Italy has retired the Catholic God from politics. France belongs to and is governed by the French. And even in Russia, there are millions who hold the Tsar and all his divine pretensions in contempt. The theological governments are passing away and the secular are slowly taking their places. Man is growing greater, and the gods are becoming vague and indistinct. These divine governments rest on the fear and ignorance of the many, the cunning, the impudence, and the mendacity of the few. A secular government is born of the intelligence, 
the honesty and the courage not only of the few but of the many we have found that man can govern himself without the assistance of priest or pope of ghost or god we have found that religion is not self-evident and that to believe without evidence is not a praiseworthy action we know that the self-evident is the square and compass of the brain the polar star in the firmament of the mind and we know that no one denies the self-evident we also know that there's no particular goodness in believing when the evidence is sufficient and certainly there's none in saying that you believe when the evidence is insufficient the believers have not all been good some of the worst people in the whole world have been believers the gentlemen who made socrates drink hemlock were believers the jews who crucified christ were believers and worshippers of god the devil believes in the trinity the father son and holy ghost and yet it does not seem to have affected his moral character according to the bible he trembles but he does not reform at last we have concluded that we have a right to examine the religion of our fathers this ends section one